All right. Let's begin reading in the last chapter, verse 18. 1 John 5.18 We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now he's already told us what that means earlier in chapter 3. It means practices sin. It makes a life, life practice of sin. But he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true and are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now we've been looking at that last phrase, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And I think the flow here is obvious that he's saying don't allow any counterfeits, don't allow any imitations, don't allow any substitutions for the fact that the true God is Jesus Christ. We are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ. So we want to examine again this morning this subject of idolatry. And we, what we've tried to do is apply this to our contemporary situation. The place we are in the 21st century here, guard ourselves from those idols that would be prevalent and all around us. So that's what we want to look again today at some of these idols that confront us. <clears throat> well, I hope that it's becoming clear that we must constantly guard ourselves from false concepts of God that would be coming into our, or try to come into our hearts and minds. Any concept of God that is at variance with his self-revelation to us in Christ is an idol because it wrongly represents God. We, got, we have to go by his self-revelation, not what we think, you know, I'd like God to be like this. You start with that and you'll end up with an idol. So, there does continue to be throughout the world uh, a lot of idolatry related to just visible images. And, uh, of course, John would be speaking against that. But we're, we're taking it deeper than that because we're talking about the idols of the heart. It doesn't have to be something that's on the wall or, or uh, on the shelf. Uh, you can have idols right down at the heart level. And uh, that kind of idol, that idol of the heart, can involve almost anything. Now, this is amazing, isn't it? It can be almost anything because anything can take the primary place of importance in your life. Anything that takes that primary place of importance other than God is an idol. Yeah. Anything. So the issue becomes, what do I really value most in my life? What is of ultimate value to me? You answer that and you find out who your God is or what your God is. It may even be some good thing. Now this is, this is important to get a hold of this. It might be some good thing, a successful business, a good marriage, good children, good health, even living a good upright life. Those can be idols. 
Even your good reputation can be your God. These are those are good things, a good reputation. The Proverbs talks about that. But these, even these good things, if we make them an ultimate thing in our life, they become idols. One person put it this way, and I thought this was good. Idolatry is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. So down on the heart level, God has made us for a love relationship with himself, and he will have no rival there. My son, give me your heart. As we saw in previous messages, God is jealous. God is a jealous God. This, when we talk about that, you know, we can have wrong ideas, but what he's talking about there is that he's jealous in the way that a loving husband is jealous when a wife is unfaithful. Idolatry is being unfaithful to God. So that's, that's the picture I think we should have when we, when we understand this thing of God being jealous. Idolatry is pictured as playing the harlot with other gods, which brings about God's righteous jealousy. So idolatry is spiritual adultery. Idolatry is spiritual adultery because it's a violation of the foremost commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, another way of looking at this is that God knows that having our heart set on him is what we were made for. This is, what, this is why we were created in the first place. And because of that, it's the absolute best thing for us. Putting anyone or anything in his place will be harmful to us. Putting any finite thing or person in the place made for and by our infinite maker and redeemer will always prove insufficient and hurtful. To put it plainly, idols make terrible substitutes for the true and living God, and they will always let you down. So for His glory... And for our good, God says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. So this morning, what I'd like to do is deal with two really big idols in our contemporary culture, which are always there as sources of temptation for us as Christians. And these two idols are sensuality and, and self. Sensuality and self. Or you could put it, flesh-pleasing and self-worship. Flesh-pleasing and self-worship. Now, those two are tied very closely together, but I think it's helpful to distinguish them so we can better understand how to guard ourselves against them. So let's start with this idol of sensuality. If you look up the definition, you'll find that we're talking about something that relates to the senses, something, something pertaining to the gratification of the body or our appetites. The word itself usually carries a negative connotation of being unrestrained indulgence of sensual pleasures, 
being unduly inclined to the gratification of the senses. But I think one of the first things we should note is that God has made us with a body. He's made us with these with appetites, with various desires that are legitimate. Some forms of sensuality are always wrong because they're clearly forbidden in the Scripture, but many desires that we have are not wrong in and of themselves. It's only when they are overemphasized or too strongly sought after that they become idols. very simple illustration of what we're talking about here would be that it's not wrong to enjoy a good-tasting meal. God's made it that way. He's made us a lot of good-tasting things, and he's made us so we can taste those things and enjoy them. But it is wrong to consistently overindulge in eating and become a glutton. So the desire that's there, God's put it there for our enjoyment. But to overindulge in that, to go too far in that, is certainly sin. Paul says, on the one hand, that some people are teaching doctrines of demons who advocate abstaining from foods for which God created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. So God's created those foods to be uh, enjoyed uh, by those who gratefully believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if if it's received with gratitude. Be thankful for that good tasting steak or, or if you're on the Atkins diets <laughs> or some good vegetable. <laughs> on the other hand, Paul says this in Philippians 3.19. He says there are people who are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction and whose God is their appetite. And actually the literal there, whose God is their belly. In other words, they were overindulging bodily desires to the extent that this had become an idol. Their God, you see, their God is their appetite. I think Paul was not just singling out gluttony there, just as one form of idolatry, but rather speaking of any person who is preoccupied with sensual pleasure, pleasing the flesh. One Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, wrote a lot on this, and uh, I'll quote him here a number of times in in this message, but uh, he put it this way. He said, Flesh-pleasing is the grand idolatry of the world, and the flesh the greatest idol that ever was set up against God. That is a man's God, which he taketh as his chief good, and loveth best, and trusteth the most, and is most desirous to please. He said, that's your God. Whatever you, whatever you take as your chief good, and lovest the best, and trustest the most, and, and desirous the most. There was an old, old English, which are hard to get off my tongue. But, but you see the point he's making. That's your God, he says. So what he's saying here, and at least he considered fleshly indulgence as the greatest idol in the world. Probably the best way to get a feel for what we're talking about here and what's involved in this kind of idolatry of sensuality is to read some verses. 
The first one, and let me just quote this one to you, is in 2 Timothy 3, 4. He says, he's speaking of people there who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. See, you've made pleasure your God. And he, he says that uh, right in that same context, he, sa- he talks about those same people as having a form of godliness but denying its power. So you can have a form of godliness, but your real God in the midst of all that is your pleasure. <coughs> lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Um, let's try Ephesians. Let's turn to this one, Ephesians 4.19. Again, he's talking about the lost person here being uh, darkened in their understanding. Verse 18, excluded from the life of God. So we're in 4.18. And then 4.19, he says this, and they, ha- and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, there's a couple things I want to br- bring out here. He's talking about sensuality, and he says... From that, he says, they practice every kind of impurity. So impurity, all that you could put under that heading is uh, the type of things we're talking about here. But he talks about having become callous. And I think that's interesting because people lose their proper sensitivity in the area of desires when they give themselves over to fleshly pleasure and they become callous, he says, giving themselves over to more, I think, more and more sensuality. That's what happens. The sensuality produces more sensuality. You become, become callous. And the idea, I think, is that we have to, that person like that, it takes an ever-increasing indulgence in the, in the uh, pleasures, the sensual pleasures, to be sat, or try to be satisfied. It just compounds itself. You're digging a hole deeper and deeper. Sensuality, then, I would say, includes various kinds of impurity. This could be uh, the things we think of in the culture a lot, or uh, drug and alcohol abuse and sexual immorality. And that last category, sexual immorality, is certainly an area that comes to mind uh, often when we talk about sensuality. Um, it's certainly one of the main idols of our culture that we have to guard against, especially since the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s. Our society has become, it's grown accustomed to fornication and pornography and sexual perversion of all types. And those things, those types of sensuality have actually been mainstreamed to such an extent that uh, we just uh, consider them as part of society. It, it's their pagan practices that are more and more coming back into our culture as the culture turns away from God and just basic general revelation of God. So these, those type of things are, are just, we're surrounded by them. 
In fact, let's turn to First uh, Peter 4, verse 3. The fact that they're common doesn't make them any less sinful. They've become common, and to stand against those type of idols in our culture is actually considered foolish and intolerant. And that's what Peter says here in First Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they, that is the lost world, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. It's so common, you see, it's become so common that they're surprised you don't go along with it. And they're so uh, taken aback by the fact that you're standing against these idols that they malign you. You're foolish. You're intolerant. And just, just as an aside, I think you realize this, but people who embrace sensuality may talk about tolerance, but you'll find that they're quite mean-spirited if you won't go along with their idols, especially if you expose it as sin. So, just a few verses on this subject of sensuality. Uh, there's one other area, and there's so many areas we could go into here, but there's one other area that I'd like to deal with, one more modern manifestation of sensuality. And it may seem like a strange one to put under this heading, but I think it fits. It's what A.W. Tozer called the great God entertainment. The great God entertainment. Many people try to fill their lives with one form of entertainment after another. And uh, it, it's what they seek. It's what they desire. It's what they think about when they have some uh, time to think about, you know, what they can. They think, well, what can I entertain myself with? Again, we may be talking about overindulging. What could be a good thing? Let me remind you of this quote from Calvin because it's good in this area. He says, evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we, in what we want but that we want it too much. Not so much what we want, but that we want it too much. For some people, entertainment has taken a primary place of importance in their lives, the place that the pursuit of God should take. So I want to quote Tozer on this because he, he said it far better than I can. He said, No one with a common human feeling will object to the simple pleasures of life nor to such harmless forms of entertainment as may help to relax the nerves and refresh the mind exhausted by toil. Such things, if used with discretion, may be a blessing along the way. That is one thing. 
but the all-out devotion to entertainment as a major activity for which and by which men live is definitely something else. All-out devotion to entertainment is something else. The abuse of a harmless thing is the essence of sin. The growth of the amusement phase of human life to such fantastic proportions is a threat to the souls of modern man. I think he says modern man because, you know, there was a time when you had to spend most of your time just trying to make enough, uh, grow enough food and, and bring in enough firewood to just survive. But that's not the case with a lot of modern men, at least in America and some of the Western nations. So it's a threat, he says, to the souls of modern men. And the ominous thing is that its power, its power of amusement, is almost exclusively evil, rotting the inner life and crowding out long eternal thoughts. The whole thing has grown to, into a veritable religion which holds its devotees with a strange fascination. Is it devotees or devotees? doesn't matter. It holds them. <laughs> it, he says it's a veritable religion which holds people with a strange fascination and a religion, incidentally, against which it is now dangerous to speak. Well, why does he put that little thing on the end? Well, it's dangerous because people don't like their idols pointed out. And you start dealing with this one. I mean, they quit printing this book for a long time because I, don't, I, I think some of the publish, publishing companies didn't even want to touch it. This great God entertainment might cut in the sale of some of their books. <laughs> um, you know, Tozer wrote that 50 years ago. I think that this false God has only gotten stronger as time has passed. With the advent of the internet and computer games and computer-generated images in movies and on television. This thing has incredible power, this false god. People are living in a virtual digital dream, a digital dream world, which keeps them from facing the reality of God. And as Tozer said, it's crowding out long eternal thoughts. God made us with a mind to think about eternity and eternal things, and we stuff it full of all this junk that the, the entertainment industry wants to put in there, and we don't think the long thoughts of eternity anymore. I mean, unless we guard ourselves from idols. People live their whole lives mesmerized and manipulated by the mass media. People, especially young people, try to imitate their idols. I'm talking about the movie stars, the TV stars, and the rock stars. You want to dress like them. You want your hair cut like them. Well, for all of us, little children, guard yourselves. From idols. So in relation to our desires and appetites, 
we should ask ourselves this question. How do we know when a legitimate desire has become an idol? If this is a matter of degree, if it's a matter of going too far overindulging, how do we know when we've done that? Well, I'm going to give you some criteria here. I've tried to paraphrase Baxter. He's kind of hard to read, but I don't know if my paraphrases are going to help or not, but we'll, we'll try here. First of all, this, this one should be obvious. If this desire supersedes my love for God, it's obviously an idol. If, if this is you know, something that goes beyond God in my life, obviously we've got an idol there. When the pleasures of the flesh exceed my delight in God, something's wrong. When the prosperity of the body is more desired and worked for than the prosperity of the soul. When I would rather be at play or feasting or gaming, those were his words, but I thought they fit pretty, pretty well modern, or gaming or getting good bargains or profits in the world than to live in communion with God and his people. If those things take precedent over living in communion with God and his people, there's something wrong. Also, if a desire becomes a demand where I think I must have this in order to have joy and peace, that's a bad sign. If the desire becomes a demand. For instance, you can just fill in the blank. If only blank, then I would be happy and fulfilled. And if not, if this desire is not satisfied, I'm going to be frustrated and resentful or bitter or depressed or judgmental, that's not good. If I'm preoccupied with a certain desire and I dwell on it constantly, I've probably crossed the line into idolatry, being preoccupied with this thing. When I will not or cannot deny myself a certain pleasure, which I know is overboard or inordinate. inordinate. If, I, if I will not or cannot desi- uh, deny myself that thing that I know is not right, that I know I've gone too far in, well, you're just saying, I've got an idol. And lastly, do I desire this so much that I'm willing to disappoint or hurt others in order to have it? Is this desire that I have so big that I'll hurt another person, disappoint another person in order to have it myself. Well, that's maybe some, some criteria there to know if we've gone over into this area, but the bigger question is how are wrong desires to be dealt with? Well, here's some things that the Bible tells us will not help us in this. Man-made rules won't get you out of this. Regulations and man-made religion won't do it. They won't deliver us. Nor will severe treatment of the body or self-abasement. People try that. They say, well, I'm, I'm indulging myself, so I'm going to go into some severe treatment of the body and self-abasement. Paul says that that will not work. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. 
go into self-abasement. You know who's doing the self-abasement? Self. <laughs> Colossians 2. It's talking about decrees that might come to us in terms of trying to deal with this type of thing. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Verse 21, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. The commandments and teachings of men are not going to help you in this. There's all kinds of psychology out there that supposedly will deal with this type of thing. It won't do it. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That's what we're talking about here is fleshly indulgence. He's saying neither legalism nor asceticism, neither one of those extremes are going to help you in this. You might push it down you might push down some of that fleshly indulgence in one area. You know what will happen? It will pop up somewhere else. So that's what won't help us. What will bring deliverance? Well, you've got to go into the next chapter, which wasn't there. Those chapter divisions weren't there when Paul wrote this. So he wanted you to realize, now that was, the answer was not in what I just stated. Here's the answer. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Keep seeking those things that are part of the new realm. If you're a Christian, keep seeking those things that are part of the new realm you've been made part of in Christ. But we need to note, this assumes who he was writing to. That is, he was writing to Christians here. This was presented to Christians, those who have been raised up with Christ. So the first step in dealing with idols in our lives has to do with coming to Christ. It has to do with becoming a Christian. If you've been raised up with him, that's, that's the first step. You're not going to deal with the idol, idols of the heart, unless that is there. Which brings me then to the last idol that I want to look at this morning, and the one that is surely the largest of all, self-worship. Self-worship. Or you could say the idol of self. It, it has to be the first and foremost of all idols. It came into the human race when Adam and Eve believed that satanic lie, you shall be like God. Right when, that, when, when they believed that, uh, that was a time that self-centered will, not God's will, became the dom- began to dominate, Christian- began to dominate uh, humanity. Self-will, not God's will, dominated humanity from that time on. The human race was made in the image of God 
with the capacity to use heart and soul and mind and strength to love God and to serve others. That's what, how we were made. But Satan tempted humanity to use this gift of personality for something else, to live independent of God and to turn our capacity to love back on ourselves, self-love. People became lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And from that sprang all the ills of mankind. We are now prone, every one of us, we're prone to self-love, self-glorification, self-will, self-indulgence, self-gratification, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-pity, and you could go on. All manner of selfish pride. Self-worship is the real religion of humanity. Even the famous historian Arnold Toynbee as he surveyed the history of mankind, concluded that self-worship was the paramount religion of mankind. He said it's the, it's the main religion of mankind, although its guises are numerous and diverse. It comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in the form of religion very often. The religions of the world are a form of self-worship. If you create a God after your own image, what are you doing? You're worshiping yourself, one form or another. Even, I mean, he said it comes in all guises and disguises. Uh, even trying to show people how unselfish you are can be selfish. So what a subtle and sinister sin selfishness is. To paraphrase one writer, he says, In the final analysis, there are only two classes of people in the world, those who have learned by the grace of God to love and those who are dominated by selfishness. The world is sick with selfishness, the selfishness of nations, of races, of classes, of corporations, of political parties, and of churches. And all of this selfishness springs from the selfishness of individuals. It's the source of war and of racism, of religious persecution, of every form of vice, every robbery, and every other crime. It grinds the face of the poor and robs the widow and the fatherless. It mars marriages and destroys homes. We're talking about selfishness, this idol. None but the eye of God can measure the wrong and wretchedness, wretchedness in every land and in every life which is inflicted by the spirit of self-will, this desire to please self regardless of the will of God or the good of others. Selfishness is the idolatrous worship of ourselves, substituting self for God. It is the exact opposite of love. As love is the fulfilling of the law, so selfishness is the violating of the law. Selfishness is the root and trunk which branches into every variety of iniquity. It may be disguised and camouflaged, often is. Sometimes 
amazingly. You can see it stated very plainly and shamelessly by some people. I want to quote to you, this is a ruler, Asher Nasherpal, ruler of ancient Assyria. This, this is part of an inscription uh, that was found, an archaeological inscription that was found. Here's what Asher Nasherpal says about himself. He says, I am regal, I am lordly, I am exalted, I am mighty, I am honored, I am glorified, I am preeminent, I am powerful, I am valiant, I am lion brave, I am heroic, I, Asher Nasherpal, the mighty king, the king of Assyria, mighty among the gods, I am the merciless weapon that strikes down the hands of his enemies. That's pretty point-blank self-worship, self wouldn't you say? Pretty unashamed. I would say if they had cameras back in that day, this guy would be taking the ultimate selfie. <laughs> now, in, in some of the messages that I've given lately, I've read some arrogant statements when we're talking about the idol of power and the idol of religion. Some arrogant statements by popes and rulers exalting themselves. But we need to recognize that this type of attitude is there in some degree in every human heart. J.C. Ryle says, no pope ever received such honors as pope self, pope self. And John Newton said, I have heard of many wicked popes, but the worst pope I ever met was Pope Self. He realized the real problem is right down there in every human heart. I'll, I'll quote one more here. This is Walt Whitman, a poet, <clears throat> in his uh, poem called Leaves of Grass, line 1271, he says this, and nothing, not God, is greater to one than oneself. In other words, the greatest thing to me is me. Now, he was saying this as a positive thing. Another place in the, the poem, he says, I celebrate myself, I sing myself. Again, he was stating this as a positive thing when in fact it's a sad commentary on mankind. Yeah. Before conversion, each one of us, in our own way, is living for self. We're on the throne of our own little kingdom, secretly saying to ourselves, I am regal, I am lordly, I am exalted. We wouldn't say it out loud, but it's there. We've made ourselves into our own idol, though we wouldn't say it the way Asher Nasserpal did. In fact, when a little child grabs a toy from a playmate and says, Mine, mine, he or she is small version of small version of Asher Nasherpal. Let me just say something to the children here. You know, your your parents will teach you, they'll say, now. You need to share. Don't be selfish. And that's good. They're trying to teach you those things. But, 
But what you need to see is that the problem is not just that you want that toy. The problem is a selfishness down in your heart, and it takes God. It takes God to change your heart. I mean, it's, it's right for mom and dad to say, don't, don't be selfish, learn to share. That's a good thing. But what you need to see is that that command, that commandment, is something that's not going to be really dealt You won't be able to really do that unless God changes your heart, changes your heart. And again, we, we start out our life this way, and it's so common to live this way. It's so deeply rooted in our lives that we tend to overlook it and not to consider this thing of selfishness as really as bad as it is. Selfishness dishonors and disobeys God. It damages others and will ultimately destroy us. A.W. Tozer said, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A mortal being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. I am regal. I am lordly. I am exalted sitting on the throne of our own selfhood. And it takes a work of God. The point I'm trying to make for all of us here, not just the children, but for all of us, it takes a work of God to dethrone us, to get self off of that throne. But God does do that when a person is truly converted. If we bow to Christ as Lord, we're saying... We want to be done with all idolatry, especially this worship of self. I mean, that's just bottom line what repentance and faith is all about. Though we may not realize it at the time when we're converted, what we're, what, what one of the things that we're saying is, Lord, deliver, deliver me from myself. Yeah. When a person's truly converted, God works in them the attitude that William Cowper put this way. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. And I would say if there's not something of that attitude in your heart, there's something drastically wrong with your profession of faith. Lord, rip those idols out of my life. Pascal said, If we know not, if we do not know ourselves to be full of pride and ambition, lust, weakness, misery, and injustice, we are indeed blind. If we don't see that reality, he says, We're indeed blind. And then he says, And if knowing this, we do not desire deliverance. What can we say of that man? Well, I, can, I, I think we can say that that 
person is still in their sins. If they realize something of this selfishness that's there in their heart and they don't want deliverance, you have to say, that person hasn't come to know the Lord. The Lord. See, that's the Lord. You can't have all those idols if Christ is Lord. Incompatible. Well, that's been somewhat negative, and I want to end on a positive note. And we can do that because of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. I'll just read it here. This is the new covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. All your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So you will be my people and I will be your God. What a promise. Tremendous promise. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. We can say... Say it this way, the gospel defeats idolatry in the believer's life. If you got a hold of the gospel, idolatry is going to be defeated. How's that happen? Well, first of all, by Christ taking the punishment our idolatry deserves and bringing us to himself as his spotless bride. He cleanses us from our filthiness. You see. But secondly, right along with that, it always comes along with it. Our idolatry is defeated by the Holy Spirit showing us more and more of the majesty and beauty of Christ. This unveiling of Christ to the believer's heart progressively cleanses us from all our idols. Doesn't happen all at once. But more and more, as we see more of Christ... Those idols are taken care of. The hardest part for me in this message had to do with me realizing there's still so much selfishness. And it's hard to understand. How can that be? Charles gave the example in his book on justification and regeneration. He said... One of the ways to picture it is just it's like a tree that's been cut down. The axe has been laid to the root, but there, there's still, you know, some sap in that, in that dead trunk that keeps the leaves hanging on a little bit for a while. My problem is it seems like there so must be so much sap in that dead trunk. But it's a dead trunk. If you're a Christian, it's a dead drunk. That is, it has to be. Because Christ, in the New Covenant, said, I'm going to cleanse you from all your idols. Well, may we, each one of us as Christians, be implying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the idols of our contemporary culture. Especially, as we're thinking today, this idol of sensuality and of self. May God help us in this area.
little children, guard yourselves from idols.